0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the ACAP Coffee Break with Meg Murray, a new podcast from the Association for Community-Affiliated Plans. Our first guest is Chris Palmieri, the President and CEO of Commonwealth Care Alliance in Massachusetts. Chris is also the Chairman of ACAP's Board of Directors. Here's ACAP CEO Meg Murray to get things started. Welcome to the first ACAP Coffee
1: Break, where we will be speaking with the CEOs of our safety net health plans. We're going to talk about leadership, both in the industry and among their their staff and their companies. Um, We want to hear their their stories about their career influences, and we want to hear more about the innovative new paths that they're forging to build healthier communities, both in this time of COVID and and just generally. I'm your host, Meg Murray. I'm the CEO of the Association of Community-Affiliated Plans, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Palmieri, Chris is the president and CEO of Commonwealth Care Alliance in Massachusetts. It's a not-for-profit community-based plan dedicated to improving care for people who are duly eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. It's a very unique plan with a storied history, and they're very lucky to have Chris there, and we're lucky to have him as the chairman of ACAP as well. So Chris, welcome to our first podcast. We wanted to hear from you about, um, why did you go into healthcare to begin with? There's, you know, you're a very talented man. You could have gone into any industry. Why did you choose healthcare?
2: Oh, this is a great question. And thank you for having me. Um, so, uh, truth be told, I tried really hard not to go into healthcare and, um, a little bit of background. Um, my uh, my mom is a registered nurse. Uh, I have three siblings, um, all of which are significantly older than I am. The closest is 12 years older. And the uh, the one that's, uh, the, the oldest is 17 years older than me. All of them are, are, are still in healthcare. My oldest brother at the time that I was going through college was a nursing home administrator. My sister was a nursing home administrator. My other brother, um, Who has a physical disability uh, spent his entire career working in food service in a nursing home and I think what led them into healthcare was uh, my my late uncle uh, owned some nursing homes and they followed in his footsteps and I tried very hard to be an attorney which was my passion and um, I started out uh, on a journey uh, in political science uh, and English which I thought would prepare me well for law school and two years into my undergraduate education, uh, I sort of panicked. And I called my oldest brother and said, I'm really worried that um, I'm not going to get into law school uh, in two years. And uh, I'm going to be sort of in a situation where um, I may not be employable. And uh, we grew up uh, fairly uh, poor and um, you know, economic considerations were important. And me running out of money to continue to finance my education was of great concern to me. So he, like great older brothers do, uh, had we had a meeting, and I'm, you know, here I am, 20 years old, and he's 37, and uh, he said, "Have you thought about healthcare?" And um, sort of told me all about what he was up to in his world, and I decided to, I transferred um, from the school I was uh, in, which was the Utica campus of Syracuse University, and ended up going to Ithaca College. Um, also in upstate New York because they had an undergraduate healthcare administration program. And, um, and ironically, Ithaca was a program that, that also trained uh, nursing home administrators and in particular prepared people well to take the, the New York state nursing home licensure. And when I got to Ithaca, uh, that was not of interest to me. I decided to put together a curriculum uh, with accounting and finance courses that I thought would prepare me well to work in a managed care organization. And um, at the time, I remember the dean of the school, uh, I'll never forget this, called me into his office. He had my entire profile. Uh, they must have done, when I was going through my admissions process, some research, or I provided them information on who my family was and what their careers were. And he said, You know, as I look at your curriculum and what you've put together, it looks like you're going to not be a nursing home administrator. Uh, you're going to try something else. And I said, I was, at the time, I was really interested in managed care. And um, and potentially working uh, in some type of care delivery organization like a hospital. And he said, um, managed care is a fad. Uh, and, oh um, and unless you want to work uh, on the on the West Coast, I don't think that's really going to be a place that will uh, create employment for you. Hmm. Uh, but he also said the decision is yours and the college will support it, although we strongly discourage the direction you're going. And I, I continue to tell that I go back to Ithaca College um, a lot. and I tell that story a lot because that became a very motivating force uh, in my life. And um, and I ended up I, I ended up pursuing the path. And, you know, now here I am um, uh, working in a, a value based uh, purchasing type organization or managed care organization. So and I think it I think it worked out well.
1: Yeah, it worked out well. And you've actually been um, led two of our ACAP plans. So what, what drew you to the safety net health plan side of managed care?
2: Uh, and actually, Meg, I think it's three because I worked. Oh. Uh, I also led. I led Home First, which is now part of Elder Plan. It was a second. Oh right, forgotten that, right? I forgotten that. Right, yeah, there. you're
1: one of our three uh-huh. We have a bunch of them at ACAP. <laughs> I
2: know. Well, I'm happy to be in that in that crowd, and and happy to have the um, the experiences that I did uh, right after college. I had a mom that really wanted her son to come back uh, to upstate New York, so of course she helped me get an internship. Um, in fact, mm. I think she found the internship un- unbeknownst to me, and it was at a. Uh, a very large uh, multi-specialty physician practice that was taking global risk. And this is, again, in the mid-90s when when very few organizations were taking global financial risk on, on uh, managed care populations. And in particular, they were taking risk on Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and they were not doing very well financially. And I had the opportunity to work with the CEO at the time, who was a, a great person, um, just moved uh, to upstate New York from uh, Montefiore Medical Center in New York City to lead this organization, and uh, he took me under his wing, and and I essentially was their their analytics person for this large problem that they had. And really, in terms of looking at the data, I wanted to learn about the populations that that they were serving, and sort of what were the drivers for the the financial results, as well as uh, there was a lot of quality issues. Um, and at this point, we were looking at vaccinations for children. And, um, and the gaps in, 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 in kids having good, uh, good health. And, um, and at the same time, um, I, had, I had just finished an internship before I took that position, uh, working in a, a diagnostic and treatment center, which is essentially, it's like a federally qualified health center. And really um, uh, felt I could help uh, uh, the populations. Um, so that was my start. And, uh, and I, I stayed with it. I mean, they, this, this physician group really wasn't a safety net organization, but then I went on at a very young age to build a small organization that um, uh, was in upstate New York that worked in the same category as, as Elder Plan and VNSNY um, in New York State's managed long term care program and did that. And, and really, the whole concept of taking individuals that would be normally living in nursing homes and allowing them to live at home. And addressing the needs that they would have around personal care services and activities of daily living and getting uh, meals prepared at home um, and getting care coordination. And all these things, as we know today, um, um, are really addressing the social determinants of health, but that was not a term that was in vogue uh, 25 years ago and, and stayed with it. Uh, just the value to see um, what you can bring to an individual who is uh, uh, reaching a point of their life where they do need some supports, but also cherish living uh, in the community and living potentially at a home that they may have lived in their whole life the supports that you can provide someone to continue that that really was what hooked me and um, uh, uh, and I've, I've stayed with it in a variety of different uh, ways throughout my entire career
1: so you you were at elder plan and then at VNS um, the health plan in New York um, and then most recently now actually it's been almost five years hasn't
2: it that you've been in CCA? It'll be five years uh, on the uh, 1st of November is my anniversary. So I, um, I was interested in sort of, uh, I guess, spreading my wings. And I was still in my late 20s and um, looking for opportunities in um, uh, much larger cities than where I was in upstate New York. And, you know, 9-11 had happened uh, and which was a very um, traumatic time for our country. And, and I, I watched so many people, you know, sort of leave New York City because they were scared and the tragedy that had just ensued. And I had an opportunity to actually go at that point and work for uh, a company that was uh, in the same family of companies as Elderplan. And it was also an organization that coordinated care for nursing home eligible people that lived in the community. And uh, I took that opportunity and I was on one of the first airplanes that was back uh, in the sky uh, uh, in, um, I guess it was September, early October of, of 2001. And when a job interview, uh, really liked the organization. I got to meet at that time, uh, David Wagner, who is you know, now um, uh, the COO and has, has spent his career there. And it was an interesting time. I mean, it was about, you know, again, coordinating care for people that needed the services, but at the same time, many of, many of our employees and their families and the people that we were caring for um, were, were um, either negatively impacted by nine 11 or, or perished in, in the, uh, mm-hmm. um, the situation where the towers had come down. So it was, uh, it was just a remarkable time to be in healthcare. And it really, um, it taught me so much that experience, and I was, you know, I was able to gain a lot as well as as well as give a lot. And there was some incredible visionaries, uh, Eli Feldman, who is a uh, he's an icon in in long-term care in healthcare, and certainly in New York, but in the country. And Maxine Hockhauser are, are two people that really um, they spent a lot of time with me and trained me, and and I think really prepared me well while I was still at a young age. And you know, as you said, from there um, I, I ended up getting to visiting Nurse Service of New York, but I took a stop in between. At Amerigroup Corporation, which was the um, at the time uh, the largest publicly traded Medicaid managed care organization, and they served moms and kids in several states, and they were looking to diversify and wanted to get into things like Medicare Advantage and managed uh, LTSS, and and that was my uh, that was my uh, role in the organization, and I had a crossroads. I um, was presented the opportunity to go to their corporate headquarters, which was in Virginia Beach. And, um, and probably if I, if I had a chance to do it again, it, maybe I would have done it, but I didn't want to leave New York and I wasn't able to stay and do the work that I was doing. So i left the organization after about a year and a half. And it was fortuitous because I had found the visiting nurse service of New York, um, uh, in 2005. And at the time, and still, I think today, they're the nation's, nation's largest home care provider, uh, that's nonprofit. And uh, they serve somewhere between eighty and hundred thousand people a day, and um, uh, they wanted to get into uh, being an insurance company as well. And they hired me; I was employee number one of their Medicare Advantage division, and spent ten years there, and uh, uh, moved up and became the ultimately the CEO of their health plans. And um, and it was uh, we were serving about forty thousand people at our height, and uh, uh, in the organization we had twenty two thousand employees and were very, very well-equipped to serve uh, the most vulnerable uh, New Yorkers um, uh, uh, because we had um, uh, the ability to coordinate care. And we also had um, a very large uh, workforce that could go into the homes um, and provide the nursing care and coordinate uh, all of the social determinants. And it was that was also an incredible experience um, in my career.
1: So you, you've talked about your progress up the ranks. What do you look for when you're hiring staff? Maybe young staff coming into the industry. What what are the characteristics that that you look for when you're hiring?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, um, and I, I would say I would say there's a there's a few things. So first of all, I I certainly prefer to work with individuals that are people you want to spend time with, people that have nice personalities. We had a saying in Remedy. Um, When you, when you met someone, is this someone you could go on a camping trip for a weekend, you know, where you're sort of stuck in close quarters without all the traditional amenities. And, um, you know, so that's something I always think about. And I think it's, it's sort of comical, but it's in the back of my, my head. I mean, one is just, can, can you lead in uncertainty? And that's something that I think we see in healthcare more and more is, is things don't go the way you hope they would, or the way you thought they would. And how does someone respond when there are uncertain times, um, do you have uh, calm under fire? Um, so, you know, we're always in, I feel like uh, high pressure situations, either, you know, dealing with the consumers that, that we serve um, and are the safety net for. These are folks that have, they have significant healthcare needs and they're touching the healthcare system uh, each and every day. And that can be very stressful if the delivery system is is not functioning the way you hope it would to soo- serve your com- your consumers or the regulatory climate, or whatever it may be, can you stay calm in those situations? Um, and do you not sort of bring more um, intensity to a situation that you're trying to de escalate? Um, do you have self awareness? So, do you know sort of where you stand in the world? You know, if you were to put a mirror up, um, what, what do you see? And do you know that? Or do you just always see yourself? I think, I think sometimes folks that have uh, less um, experience um, see themselves in a very different light than is reality and um reality obviously is how everybody else sees you so if you have the self awareness and understand what your not only what your strengths are but what your weaknesses are it can make you a better a better you um not only in, obviously in the employment world but in life in general and i think the last thing is just do you have the willingness to get to get the job done um and it's you know this these are not i think roles in healthcare are not about are, are you in your chair uh, from 9 to 5 or you know now are you on zooms from 7am to 7pm. It's about are you are you able to get things done? And that's really important um, for people. And I think oftentimes, uh, people still lose sight of that. So those are some of the things I look for, um, in particular.
1: Right. And certainly, um, being able to be calm in a time of uncertainty is really important right now with COVID. And I'm curious, what are some of the things that you did with the staff at CC8 as you moved to the virtual world and and dealt with the pandemic that started in Massachusetts? What were some of the management changes that you made within your organization?
2: No, it's a it's a it's a really it's a great question and something that you know as we think about when is when is COVID going to end or what are going to be the lasting impacts or is there going to be a second wave? You know, I'd say first of all, back in March, um, you know, we we moved everybody home almost immediately, and we had never had our entire workforce working remotely for more than uh, 24 hours, and that was due to inclement weather. And now they've been out for about 215 days, and our uh, systems uh, have responded flawlessly, and I'm thankful for that. We we've spent the last five years making some significant technological investments. Uh, and those are paying off, but you know. So first, it was about the safety of the staff and our members. So how do we get, how do we get people in the best environment? Um, how do we make sure that our staff are equipped to do their job? So we we sent everyone um, uh, an IT setup, which is either laptops or or um, main you know hard uh, hard drive systems, uh, monitors, sometimes multi monitors if that's what their job requires, keyboards. Then we went one step further and we sent folks that that didn't have the appropriate uh, uh, desks and chairs and ergonomically uh, appropriate equipment. So we wanted to make sure that people were equipped to do the work that they needed to do at home because we had no idea back in the early days that even this was going to be as long as it is now. And we hoped it wouldn't, but it was. And the second thing was we we communicated with our workforce in its entirety um, every two weeks uh, because people had questions, people were scared people to know how to do their jobs um, uh, from from a distance. And we wanted them to know that we were were there with them and um, uh, uh, provided them the support. And and these were live town halls or uh, over a thousand people were calling into each. And uh, we allowed them to also ask us questions, us being the leadership team. And we'd answer those questions um, uh, immediately on, on the call. So there was no scripted answers. It was really much more candid um, so, uh, so we, we, we supported our workforce that way we've given, uh, our staff, um, time off, uh, so that they can rest because again, I think, I think people, uh, early in, in March and April and May, they just never stopped working. They didn't, they weren't used to working in an environment where there were really no boundaries, which historically you leave your office, you're not working, folks were at home and they were getting up at six in the morning and they were working on Zooms until midnight. And they, you know, had a couple of people that said, geez, I didn't realize I just did that for 55 days. And, um, and we, we needed to help our folks take a break, uh, which we did. And we gave them some mandatory um, time off. Um, we also paid uh, for our staff's uh, uh, internet. Uh, a lot of our folks, like I think the world has been experiencing, not only were they using uh, their Wi-Fi, but their children were doing it to go to school. Their spouses were doing it, and bandwidth became an issue. And we asked our folks uh, if they needed to to increase their bandwidth, and we paid for that um, uh, for a period of time. Um, so it it's been a good recipe. At the same time, um, we extended our expertise to the state of Massachusetts. And um, you know, the one thing is, I look back on my own career, um, you know. I guess there's a benefit to to living and working through uh, the the tragedy of 9-11 and then uh, Hurricane Sandy, um, which occurred, I believe, in 2013. And um, uh, you get experience in terms of how to run an incident command center, how to do business continuity planning, how to communicate with your workforce. So we immediately went to the state of Massachusetts, which had set up a command center, which is a bunker-style way that the state and its officials were going to manage the crises. And we offered our expertise to them. We had no idea if they would take us up on it, but we said, you know, we have, I said to the secretary, I I have experience in these disasters, unfortunately, but I'd like to help in any way. And um, and lo and behold, the state came to us pretty quickly and they said, uh, we have a situation with uh, folks in the MassHealth Medicaid uh, fee-for-service program and we're concerned that um, they're going to be trying to access acute care for things that may be a lower level of care than we have access and capacity to do, given all the people that are going to need ventilators and how this is going to escalate. And they originally said, can we, can we borrow some of your staff? Mm-hmm. And we didn't have any staff to loan. Um, because our staff were very much fast at work and caring for the members uh, that that um, were enrolled in our plans as well as the patients in our primary care centers. I said, who is going to run this operation, which they hadn't really even figured out yet at the time what it was going to be? And they said, we don't know. And I said, well, I will offer to run it for you um, if you can get the staff. And they, they six hours later, called back. It was a, it was a call at 11 o'clock at night with somebody that was... Um, Uh, designated by the secretary um, to lead this part of the operation. And in conjunction with uh, FEMA and MEMA, we decided and the state decided that they were going to set up six um, isolation and recovery centers, which were going to be at six hotels that the state was leasing. And they were going to house COVID positive individuals that did not need a level of care uh, that was equivalent to the acute care hospital, but needed to be in a place where they could be cared for They wouldn't contaminate others, a place where their families could go if necessary. So we ran that with 600 beds. Um, We have have one facility still running today. It has about about 18 to 20 people in it. We think that those will be remobilized um, if there's a second wave. Um, But that was an incredible experience. And um, we're grateful that the Commonwealth called on us. And I think the Commonwealth is grateful that we were able to help them on this small piece of, of their operation.
1: Oh. yeah I saw this morning that the cases are increasing in Boston. Um the schools had to shut down, I think today. So um, are you starting to see that play out with among your of uh, either the homeless population you were helping for the state or your own population?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, um, it, it, we've watched the numbers. They've been a steady rise now. again, the testing is also up. so um, so as we test and have more confirmations of positive, some of it's a function of having greater testing and more rapid testing. but, The cases are rising here, and um, we are going to see uh, some regression on steps that we were trying to make forward in hopes of um, creating some sense of, you know, I wouldn't say it's a sense of normalcy, but it's a way for people to resume some of the activities that they wanted. You know, some colleges here have had students on campus, some have elected for students to go remote, some of the retail industry has opened, um, uh, and all of that. You know, all of that is, is those are all parts of a very vibrant economy, which has been non-existent um, for the last six months. And I think the, the tension is obviously, how do you, how do you, can you reopen the economy and can you, can you, can you do it in a way that's safe? And, you know, unfortunately right now the numbers are, are saying something very different and um, uh, you know, the decision for kids to go back home is a, it's a big one. And um, uh, I think it, it signifies that we're going to be in for a pretty long haul. Um, I had a, a conversation with uh, with the governor a week ago about some of CCA's uh, thoughts on the future, and um, and you know he acknowledged second wave. Um, I think anyone in Massachusetts would. Um, we don't think it's going to be as as bad as the first go around, but but it's very serious, and we have to continue to practice social distancing and wear our masks and um, not put ourselves into situations or environments that are going to create risk because this. This does, unfortunately, spread very, very easily and very quickly.
1: Yeah, especially, I guess, among the congregate settings that a lot of your people are in. The um, the states are starting to come out with their plans for vaccine distribution. And I wondered if if are you all starting to talk to the state about that and, and think about that, given your population that will be probably first on the list to get vaccines?
2: we are we, we're having some conversations about it um i think the conversations are tempered certainly internally as well as um uh at the state level about what is the vaccine going to be safe is it going to be um tested enough for people are people are our people going to voluntarily want it um you know and that's the other key ingredient here so i think all these conversations are happening uh, in parallel this is going to be the fastest we've brought a production vaccine, I think, to the marketplace in history, um, and that is something that I think. I think consumers, they have a lot of trepidation, and I think I think cons, uh, consumers and people are going to have to decide, you know, um, where they stand on that, and then will there be enough vaccination, uh, vaccine, I should say, to go around so that people can get it? But you know, our, our folks would definitely be a priority. Right.
1: Yeah. What about some of the other challenges? Um, it's probably hard in some ways to think beyond COVID, but I know you're always planning well ahead. What, in the next couple of years, what are the other challenges for the, the plan?
2: Yeah. So I think um, uh, there's, there's a variety of them. So, uh, you know, we do have a presidential election, and we're, I think, all sort of preparing for what the healthcare agenda will look like if we have another four years of the Trump administration, or if we have four years of, of the Biden uh, administration and what does that look like? Uh, I think there is a desire uh, to continue to move uh, individuals that are covered by the Medicare program into some type of value-based purchasing uh, relationship. It seems like that is uh, some level of consistency between either party, although I think how that gets executed will look very different. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that we uh, here in Massachusetts, continue to advance uh, the, inge- the agenda and the success of the programs in Massachusetts now that they are reaching a different type of scale. Um, and you know, just to give you an example, uh, Massachusetts has had its senior care options program since 2001, and we have about 57,000 people in it. Uh, and that's more uh, enrollees in one state's fide uh, SNP than, for example, the entire PACE uh, Association's membership in every state. So this has been a great success. And the plans here, and I can speak for CCA, we're, we, we're a four and a half star plan. We've always been four or four and a half. And our peers are also seeing high levels of quality. Um, so it's a good quality plan. It meets the consumer's needs. And and I, I want to leverage the experience in Massachusetts, and I frankly think the administration here does too, to, to point to it as this is an example of when done right, this can really work. And, um, and I think other states um, can adopt certain things that we're doing and the lessons that we've learned now over 19 years with the Senior Care Options Program. And, you know, I think it is going to be for us challenges of continuing to show that, show that success uh, with the administration. And, you know, we're seeing now, uh, even uh, with the current administration, there are some things coming out of uh, CMMI that wants to advance uh, uh, integrated care and value-based purchasing. And we're seeing the direct contracting a model come forward. I think, you know, the challenges for us will be making sure that that continues to happen. Uh, the second thing is that as a nonprofit safety net plan, we are seeing much more industry consolidation than we've we've ever seen. And I think, you know, there was a lot of consolidation, you know, here to now going all the way back to when I started my career, but there were also more plan sponsors and now Uh, It's happening quicker. I think COVID and the financial challenges on certain organizations, it has accelerated. And we see certain organizations that are, you know, publicly traded um, are getting bigger and have done more acquisitions and integrations. And, you know, I don't want to leave everybody with the impression that the public entities um, uh, aren't aren't worried about their consumers, but their ultimate objective is to return uh, an investment to their shareholders versus I think what the safety net nonprofit plans are, which is really it is about the consumers and making sure that the consumers' needs are met first. Um, and I think, I think, you know, lastly, we're all going to do this in a fiscal climate that's going to be different than we've ever seen before. We are talking about, you know, how do we true up the dollars that have that have been put out uh, by the federal government, flowed through the states uh, to make sure that there's a healthcare system uh, still standing when this pandemic ultimately winds down. And um, you have tax revenue because the retail is, 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 is lower than it's ever been. So tax receipts for the state are lower. You have greater unemployment than we've ever seen. So the the economic equation is a very challenging one. At the same time, you see an uptick in people on the Medicaid programs. I don't think we, we saw we're, we're seeing the surge that we thought we were going to see. But I think it's just it's a timing issue, not a circumstantial issue. So we have to be prepared to serve more people um, and potentially do that with less resources, uh, less, less premium dollars. And we have to be able to do this the same, the same, if not a better job than we've done before. And, and we may have, frankly, a a, a sicker community uh, because they have been, maybe they have not, you know, maybe they've not been hospitalized by COVID, but but they may have been negatively impact, impacted. We've had consumers that have not had the access to healthcare like they did back in uh, February and March before COVID hit. And um, and I think you're, we're going to see a, a, a different consumer, a sicker consumer, one that has more behavioral health complexities, one that has not gotten their their routine and maintenance primary care, uh, uh, health care, um, because of the, you know, just there hasn't been the right access points. Um, I think that's what we're going to see in 21. And uh, we have to be prepared. Okay
1: so what would you say to your 22 year old self given what you know about our industry and our country um, what w- what advice would you give to that 22 year old chris thinking there in ithaca about what to do with his life
2: yeah it's it's and it's it's actually advice that i i still give cuz i try to access as many of the the what i think is going to be the next generation of leaders and who is going to have to solve the problems in our country because i i think they're great and i i don't think i'm going to I'm going to be able to do it in my career, um, I, in my peer group. So first, um, it, it is that they can make an impact um, in whatever they decide to do, whether it's healthcare or something else. Um, the second piece is that I try to attract, to the extent I can, I sell healthcare as an industry to as many people as I can because I just, I frankly think it's a, it's a place for employment that is, is just greatly overlooked. By a lot of our talent, and you know, it's um, before before COVID. It was a three trillion dollar uh, industry, and now that's that's probably up by thirty or forty percent in terms of the way spending is going. Um, it's it's the largest part of what we spend um, as a country on, and I think that's going to continue to grow. And um, I want to. I think I think there will be value in attracting as many talented people to look at healthcare, maybe the way I did, although I tried to avoid it myself. Uh, when I was in my my late teens and then ended up coming back to it. I'd like more people to recognize it as it's a place where they can go and have a rewarding uh, role and work on the things that they've learned in school around, whether it's finance or marketing or some clinical pathway that they're choosing um, or being able to build a business. Um, uh, all of that exists in healthcare as much as it does, and maybe more so now than banking and the traditional pathways that people Want to go into when they're when they're younger in life, um, so that's that's sort of um, where I start, and then I get into you know some of the things that you know I give advice to my my nephew who is uh, 23 and also just chose a path in healthcare, which I'm very proud of, and to really sort of you know think about uh, his career. Uh, As he looks forward and what are the skills that he will need in sort of his early 20s, his mid 20s, and how is he developing those and how is he creating the social and professional networks that will help him and, and continuing to develop um, himself and that's sort of the the advice I would give once I hopefully would lure someone into healthcare.
1: Well, that, that's great advice. And I will share those with my son, who is just starting college, as you know, and uh, hopefully thinking about these things too. Um, so the last question and the wrap-up question is um, one, we here at ACAP or many of us are bookworms and we're always looking for good advice for books, both um, fiction to kind of restore our soul as well as nonfiction to enhance our knowledge. So um, you will be the first person we've asked this question to, but we are gonna start up a list on Goodreads and ACAP, list of books. Um, and so what, what should be one of the books uh, that's on our Goodreads uh, want to read list?
2: Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give you three and okay, great. Uh, uh, the, the, I choose books maybe slightly differently than others. So I like to read things that I actually know the authors or I've heard the authors and have some level of connection. So the first book is written by Alan Weiner. Alan is a um, a, a corporate uh, uh, executive and communications uh, guru. So Alan uh, is an executive coach and helps folks um, with their communication style and strategy. And the book is called So Smart But, How Intelligent People Lose Credibility and How They Can Get It Back. Uh, and it's a great book. It's a really easy read. Alan's a great person um, and uh, just a very practical approach. Um, the second one is, um, is by Michael Beer. Uh, and I just heard Michael um, uh, uh, present to a group of Boston uh, executives. And the name of the book is Fit to Compete, Why Honest Conversations About Your Company's Capabilities Are the Key to a Winning Strategy. Um, and again, in this one, I think, uh, you know, it is sort of, uh, you know, looking at your your company um, from, from the perspective of what reality is, not sort of the utopian Uh, view that I think a lot of people um, uh, look at themselves as in corporate America. And then the last one, um, and this is um, someone I've gotten to know over the years, um, who has been a a friend, a potential investor in some things we were doing. And uh, and really, I look at him as a mentor. uh, And that's uh, Ron Williams, um, former CEO of Aetna. um, And his book is Learning to Lead and uh, also just a great book. Um, And I think I I would say all three of them are um, easy reads and you can read them all sort of concurrently if you're that type of individual, or you can, you can do them consecutively. Um, But they're, they're great books to read and I would recommend all of them.
1: Okay, great. Well, those will be the first three books on our list then. And uh, as part of the podcast, you'll be able to see a link to the Goodreads site um, and see the other books that our other CEO's have recommended. So Chris, thank you so much for being our inaugural podcast uh, guest. And we look forward to other conversations with some of our other CEOs at ACAP. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Meg. This was wonderful. And I appreciate those that have spent the time to listen to this, to actually actually do that. So thank you. um, Thank you to the ACAP audience.
0: Thanks again for joining us today. You can find Chris's book recommendations on the ACAP Coffee Break Goodreads bookshelf. Find the link in the description of this podcast, or just head to Goodreads and search ACAP. Our next episode features Linda Hines, the Medicaid plan president of Virginia Premier Health Plan. Here's a preview.
2: I was torn, to be honest with you, uh, between being a social worker and and, uh, a nurse, and that was back in the, the 80s. But really settled on wanting to be a nurse, feeling that that's where I could really do the most good or what I wanted to do.
0: Don't miss that and more on the next episode of the ACAP Coffee Break. You can find and subscribe to the ACAP Coffee Break wherever you get your podcasts. And when you do, give us a shout on Twitter using the hashtag #ACapCoffeeBreak. Coffee Break. We'll put you in a drawing for a Starbucks gift card. So the next time you tune in, your coffee's on us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.